Listeners should be aware there may be spoilers. the community away but you wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street touch my family and i'll kill you so we're gonna have to leave belfast we'll fight this together this is it this is what this is war welcome to editors on editing the podcast in collaboration with american cinema editors and pro video coalition I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Una Ni Ganila. Una has edited such excellent projects as White Girl, The Missing, and Ripper Street, all three for which she was nominated for the BAFTA, three girls for which she won the BAFTA, as well as Wallander, The Crown, and Stan and Ollie. Now she has edited the powerful and moving film Belfast, for which she was nominated for the Eddie. I so enjoyed your editing on Belfast. I thought you did a fantastic job. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Glenn, for asking me. I really appreciate you. You've done both features and episodic television. Could you speak to the differences and if you have a preference? Oh, well, I definitely have a preference, I think, for film, only because it's such a joy to tell a story with the beginning, middle and end. Um, episodic telly, I've, I really enjoyed when I did Three Girls. That was three parts, and I was the sole editor of all three episodes. That also was very challenging and rewarding because you could actually shape the film and I could move scenes from episode one into episode two. There was a playfulness that you could do when you're editing all three episodes out of a three-part series. Sure, it was like a long film. Yeah, exactly. When I'm doing something like The Crown, I mean, The Crown was just amazing because they were amazing people and each episode was sort of treated as a little movie in its own right. The best thing I think about episodic telly maybe is the culture of other editors. Ours is such a nomadic existence that sometimes you don't see another editor. And then suddenly I was on The Crown with these brilliant editors alongside me. And that was really nice. And I I made some great friends on that. I haven't done anything episodic, by the way, that I haven't been sort of in control over, except, say, The Crown. But some of the episodic tell you, like The Missing, Series 1, I assembled all eight episodes, and then another editor joined me and we split them. So I've always sort of been like a lead editor. I haven't quite come in as someone who had to follow another editor's style. I actually love everything. I I actually love storytelling. So I, I love animation. I've also done animation in the past and documentary. As an editor, I like to challenge myself and I like to do different things. When I did Stan and Ollie, a lot of people might think that you have to be a comedy editor to do one thing and a drama editor to do another. I, I definitely am someone who would champion as editors for storytellers and whatever our background, as long as you can tell a good story, any of us can edit anything. Absolutely. One of the things that I think is really special about Belfast is it has a poetic quality. And when you were editing, you supplied that poetic quality to it. I think the poetry was quite implicit. It wasn't something overt that Ken and I discussed even prior to shoot or anything. His script was beautiful. And there's a vernacular of the people of Northern Ireland, which Ken captured the way that they speak. And my dad is from Northern Ireland, from Oma and Kent Tyrone. Even though they were technically working class people, they loved poetry. They loved song. And I remember my grandparents, they could sing or recite poetry at the drop of a hat with my parents' friends. 
they all have a recitation or some sort of gift of bringing rich cultural appreciation to normal day life. So Ken actually had it embodied in his film. It invited a pacing, which meant sometimes we could hold on the scene without doing too many edits. And then when we did make the cut, we wanted the cut to matter. So I think we found a musicality in the way that they shot it, how we put it together. And the first cut, it was two hours, 20 minutes. And it was a nice watch. It wasn't baggy or flabby, but it was too long. So then we began to sculpt it. And I think that's where, as we moved the scenes around, we found a poetry maybe, but it wasn't an overt choice. I think it just came from the way he wrote it, the, the culture and the way he shot it. It was using sound and music as characters. Uh, for me, I love working with sound. I was very influenced by films that I saw when I was a younger person in college. And I saw Terence Davis, Distant Voices Still Alive. So the way he had used sound has always stayed with me. Same thing with Truffaut's 400 Blows. The beauty of that ending, the simplicity of the way that they could tell a story. I think I have that in, in me as well. I think Ken has that in him. So, so we were a good team. That's excellent. How did you and uh, Ken end up working together? I think it's through Wallander that Ken knows me because although he was the lead actor and producer, he, he didn't direct Wallander. But from that point on, I know that a couple of times he touched base with me to see what I was doing. And then I was offered Death on the Nile and Death on the Nile got postponed. Then I was offered All Is True, which was his passion project about Shakespeare. So then I, I edited All Is True, which was a really quick turnaround. Then Death on the Nile and then Belfast. So we actually have done three feature films, two passion projects and one big feature, Death on the Nile, in a two-year period. Wow. Yeah. What's uh, Ken's process in the editing room like? He's really good because he's also an actor and really has a huge appreciation for performance. He's actually very gracious. He watches, we discuss, share ideas, and then he leaves. So he's not a director who stays sitting behind me. I have worked with directors who love the cutting room and they really stay behind, even if they're not even monitoring what I'm doing. They're just maybe writing another script or whatever. But Ken is quite prolific with his work in theatre as well and developing other projects. So he comes, he's very focused, he watches, he gives great feedback and then he leaves so when we were working on Death on the Nile and Belfast, because of the pandemic, we had to work separately. So I had an abbot in my house. He had an abbot in his house. My assistants had abbots in their house. We were all separate over to COVID. And I could literally cut the sequence, email the abbot bin. My assistant could pop it in, render everything and leave it open. So Ken could literally come down six in the morning and hit play and just watch it on his big screen. And then I would phone him at 8 a.m. and we'd discuss it for about an hour. And then I'd dive in and make changes, offering up more ideas. And we'd talk later in the day. So we worked as if we were in the same room. I think we came together very well as both people pushing and trying our best to find the best way of finding everything that we could do in the time that we had. So although it was a, a passion project, it has the ambition of a huge studio-funded production. Because this is his family story, and because it is his childhood memories, some of these things in the film are actual memories, like that first scene of the riot. I found Ken a very gracious person to work with because it was so close to him. I think he appreciated working with those who had his back. And if I saw something that maybe I thought, could this work? I wasn't afraid to speak up or afraid to step on his toes. He was so confident in his vision, he welcomed collaboration. And that was really good, actually, to work with somebody like that, because then you can really bond together and just get deep into it. That's fantastic, because when somebody's telling such a personal story, it might be almost difficult to 
put your ideas into place because he might want it to feel a particular way. But the fact that he's very open and is fantastic. Even if I suggested something and say he did say, well, I'm not too sure about that. He would always say, audition the idea. That was his phrase, which I've now adopted. I think it's a good phrase. So I could send him some ideas that he could review as if he was in the room with me. And that was a good way for him to also just think about it. So would you try several different ideas and cut a scene several different ways? I'm actually very old school. I, I trained on film, so I can watch the rushes as if we're on film. And you know, when you just marked it up with your chinograph and you actually made a decision, I'm quite good at being decisive. So if I'm cutting a scene and I watch all the rushes and I see something wonderful in one shot where I think, okay, that's a great moment to use for that shot, that wide shot in that moment. And maybe that goes into the middle of the scene and I build around it. So I'm not someone who just does multiple options. But what I did find, particularly with this film, there were a lot of scenes that came together quite long in a row. And then the challenge was, how did you make sure that the pace didn't plateau? Because you needed a visceral feel. For example, there were some scenes that were in different places in the script. So the scene when uh, Ma and Pa are dancing in the street and there's the joke with the family, the community coming together. We then cut to Pa putting out the bin and the neighbour comes in and basically says, don't be the Lone Ranger. And then as they go in, we linger on the bin and then we cut to the colour explosion of one million years BC. Well, that scene with the bin, that actually came much, much later after Mom and Pa had their conversation at Christmas time. And it was actually quite late in the film. So I remember saying to Ken, what if we brought that up much earlier? Because the neighbour, Frankie, the nice man who was on the barricade, you had just seen him the night before. And just instinctively, I felt, would that work? And that's where Ken said, well, audition it for me. And then naturally, instead of going to the exterior of the cinema, the cut from the bins to this fiery explosion just revealed itself. And so things like that happened. When you moved things around, you know, storytelling ideas sort of revealed themselves. And Ken was open to that. The other one is, you know, um, when Pa is going back to England, that scene with the little boy at the window, that was much earlier. And I have two kids. So I, I actually live in Dublin, but I work in London. I, I am Pa. I found myself saying that a few times. I am the person who you know, travels. Monday morning, 4 a.m., I'm kissing two sleeping children goodbye as I go to take an airplane. So I happen to say to Ken, the scene with Paul waving goodbye and the little boy at the window, that used to happen earlier, after they went to see One Million Years B.C. And I was saying to Ken, the thing that I just sort of felt was, if we cut to the morning, it was actually more heartbreaking that Paul was already gone, rather than seeing him wave goodbye. And if mm. we move that scene waving goodbye later, after little buddy has shouted, I don't want to leave Belfast, then it was a real visceral reaction of, oh, my God, you know, he's leaving. They don't want to leave. He, he's actually going to go. And he's trying to say to the kid, two weeks, the child had the tantrum. So it just became a much more emotional scene rather than an expositional scene. So things like that happened. But it was a very organic, intuitive process for both of us. That's, and Ken would also, by the way, he'd obviously be saying loads of things because Van Morrison was his idea in script form. He always had Van Morrison top and tail, but within the body of the film was music of the time. And when he saw it just after we wrapped, the first thing he said to me was, let's take all the music off except Van Morrison and let's sprinkle Van Morrison throughout the film. Yeah, I think the whole Van Morrison thing is really interesting. What was his choice to have Van Morrison almost be the vocal voice musically of the movie? In script form, Van Morrison was always top and tail, but with the same song, The Healing Has Begun. And then Van, very kindly and very speedily, gave us Down to Joy. So then we had Down to Joy at the top, 
and the healing has begun at the end because this film is about celebration of community, a celebration of humanity and the healing, hopefully, for Northern Ireland. I know we've all said it's a love letter to Belfast, his home city. So once we have two different tracks of Van Morrison, I think Ken felt that they actually were a connective tissue. And it was an experiment at the beginning just to see, could this work? This is his memoir. And obviously Van Morrison's words resonate for him and they give him the fingerprints that he feels tells the story from his perspective. And then once we put it on, it was quite exciting. And then Van offered up uh, two cues of instrumental, which were both roughly five minutes each. And we were able then to cut between them. So we used those little musical moments, which again kept the connective tissue of the sound of Van Morrison. I, I think that's something very personal to Ken. As a poet, Jovan in Ireland, he's called the poet of Belfast. I keep saying to Ken, well, he's also this down two poets who stem from Belfast, because I think Ken also has that sort of poetic nature and the words seem to fit. I thought uh, the dark side of the road was very powerful. That whole montage that you created of Buddy living in this war zone like yeah. place. And it uh, was very powerful hearing Van Morrison's soulful voice while you showed these different images. And those little vignettes, they were very important because, as I say, Ken shot a lot of beautiful material. And as we refined, a lot of beautiful material was falling to the cutting room floor. And then we found by just taking moments like those guys being searched or Buddy looking at the girl getting her hairbrush, that was a much longer scene. But we could actually just pick moments, iconic moments, collapsing those scenes, putting the Van Morrison music on. And again, it helped with the shaping. It gave a little bit of respite between the long dialogue scenes, which were exquisite, but they needed a little bit of breath for the audience to just feel the time passage as well in this place. In any country that is besieged by war, children still have to go to school and try and live ordinary lives. So that was very important to us. And in the sound design as well, before shoot in August, I had asked Ken what were his sound memories, because I thought the sound design on a subjective level, would be a real character in this film. It's fantastic. Creating that normality, the sound of the rag and bone man, or the constant trains, Ken said, that were going past, mm. the helicopters, a little bit of the ice cream van during a riot, or we could just try and do something counterintuitive or unexpected that could further just make you, on a very unconscious level, feel the loss of innocence. Yeah, those little vignettes added such a richness of the world. You really got a sense that this was a place with people and memories. And it's interesting because the pace feels very fast. And yet you have these scenes, like you said, that you play mostly in either oneers or just a few shots. And then you'll counter those with yeah. quite a bit more edits in a different scene. So it, it has a very nice rhythm to it. And it never feels like you're overstaying your welcome. Yeah, that, that was actually really important to us. We didn't want to be indulgent or sentimental. We did want to keep that musicality of the edit and say, for example, that elliptical style of editing with those collapse scenes, as you say, on a, even on a subtextual level, you did feel the normality of the place. So another one that I, I love is um, Van Morrison's Days Like These, when Pa's trying to get her to go to Australia. Ma does not want to go. And what we realised was you didn't want the audience to get weary of Ma and just think, why doesn't this lady leave? So you really had to show children doing the long jumps and the family gathering together and on days like these as Van Morrison is sort of saying there's nowhere better to be than in Belfast with your family and your loved ones around you that we needed the audience to empathize not just with little buddy 
but also with Ma and not get frustrated by her. Well, it was so powerful when Pa's telling Ma about the job in England. You could just tell that she's so conflicted because she's going to leave her family, her friends, her whole life. And yet Pa sees this is just going to get worse. And I don't want to be dragged into it. I don't want to have to be a part of this war. And there were a lot of good people on both sides who probably did get sucked into it against their own wishes because there was no escape. Ken and his family obviously were very ordinary, decent people. They were not sectarian. They were very bravely saying no to that. But then as things escalated, they were going to be put into a position of you're either with us or you're against us. Sometimes the media do reduce it to the religion. It began as a civil rights struggle. I don't know how much idealism there was on either side. Sure. You have these really beautiful scenes of them dancing, and then you'll pull back and reveal that there's barbed wire. It's nice how you hold back on some of these reveals. Another scene that I thought you did that brilliantly was when Buddy so wants to move to the head of the class so he can sit next to this girl he has a crush on. And with help from his grandfather, gets good enough grades. And then he looks over and it's not her. <laughs> it's know, the other guy. Yeah. You know, and that was a great scene because they shot that 60 frames per second. And we did the little time warp. As he stands, we go from 24 frames to 60 frames. So it begins slow motion. And then as he moves around and sits down, we sort of sped it up a little bit because it became too long by the time he sat down. And then we went back slow. So we, if you ever watch it again, it sort of speeds up as he sits down and gathers his books. Then it goes slow again as he looks over. And what I loved actually was the way that Ken framed it. You didn't quite see that the blonde girl was behind him until he actually turns. And it was quite funny. Exactly. I think withholding that information makes those scenes play more significantly and more interestingly. Do you know what I love, Glenn, just to touch on as well? I love the fact that you don't know that the girl he's in love with, who who he wants to sit beside, is Catholic until the very end. And I thought that was actually a really important Mm. Again, when he says, do you think I can marry her? And the father said, of course, you can. why not? And he says, because she's a Catholic. That really resonated with me because um, you have family in the north and, and I have cousins now who have married Protestant men. But in the time of my grandmother, that would have been impossible because mm. it, it wouldn't have been safe. And if that had been stated earlier, it would have tainted everything that you knew about how he was looking at her. Whereas yeah. since you don't reveal it, it's just a boy who has the intense crush on this girl. Yeah. And as you say, it hasn't been overstated. It's just a simple fact. And it meant nothing to the little boy or the little girl. They just liked each other. Sure. That first scene where Buddy, it seems like he's living this idyllic life. There's joy and there's fun and everybody knows him. And then all that is rocked when you start shifting the sound. The cable car becomes this strange, weirdly, I, I'm not sure if you slowed it down or whatever, but yeah. then you start coming right. around, buddy, as different sounds start coming in. And then you pan around, buddy, to reveal the rioters. It's quiet. And then suddenly an explosion of sound comes in. Yeah. And there's some beautiful Polish films that I've seen years ago where they have used sound in a very exciting way. And sometimes after explosions, you know, people go to silence. We sort of inverted that. And Ken said that he thought as a child, he heard the sound, he thought it was like the buzzing of bees. He had that actually reference in the script. So I immediately knew that I had some latitude to do creative sound work and actually build up a really exciting sound bed of confusion before 
the first explosion, otherworldliness to try and mimic Ken's memory. And as you say, we did put a time warp on. Uh, Ken and Harris shot at 60 frames per second, that circular track. But I was able to put a little time warp on so we could go from real time, 24 frames down to 48, getting slower than faster to 60. It actually rotates them twice. The first time you just see a blurring of the crowd and then it goes around again, but at a little bit of faster speed until you come back to the back of the headshot with that big explosion. Uh, Ken had shot two cameras. So I was like a little magpie just going through all the rushes of the B camera because B camera was just snatching so many wonderful moments. We obviously shot this during COVID. And um, thanks to the rioters having scarves, Charlotte Walter, our costume designer, she was able to put surgical masks under the scarves. So it was the first time we <laughs> oh, actually had it. that's great. Yeah, it's great. And then Ken just made sure, because it was our first time to actually have a lot of people on the street, he had two cameras. So I was able to just use a flurry of editing after the opening, which was sort of done in real time. Then I was much more elliptical and just jumping time. So Ma throws them off the table. She runs outside. Then there's a high angle, like a drone over them. Then she's back in. She's over the window. So we wanted to capture the psychology of what it felt like to be them. I feel like choosing not to have score there makes it more real, which I think was very powerful. And then speak to mixing normal speed with slow-mo. So that was a huge tool for us, just that use of being able to put something that Ken shot at 60 frames, being able to put a time warp on and just speed him up or slow him down, which allowed a more psychological feel even to a shot that has no edit. But technically, my little time warp allowed control of the image. All of those tools really helped us to make sure that we made it feel immediate. Like I I would say it's probably a more psychological style of editing once I start cutting. But by having the longer takes at the beginning, it's like the calm before the storm. And that had a really strong emotional impact for an audience, even for me when I'm watching it. When you start editing after having withheld edits, then those edits matter, actually. And as you said, without using music, music sometimes might make it feel at arm's length or it might make it feel, depending on the music you use, either too exciting or too sad or whatever the case may be. But by keeping it as the sound design, you are absolutely in the subjectivity of our characters. An important conversation, which I haven't really discussed before, but the subjective point of view is something really important to me as an editor. Whenever I'm cutting, I'm always mindful of how I could construct something that would allow an audience to empathise or feel in the shoes of somebody. Once Buddy was under the table in safety, we go back into slow motion for Ma and allow her breath to resonate, to peak above all that rioting. Mm. When she's at the window, we're in her shoes, actually. And I think that fades black and just hearing her saying, oh, holy God, in black, just allowed the audience to know what that felt like. And that was actually a pivotal moment in the family's life. What I keep sort of recognising is we had social realism a little bit with those riots, but we also had the magic realism. So the first riot is quite socially Mm -hmm. real. We've got no music. It's real sound. But the second riot is magic realism. See through the eyes of the child. And we use the music of High Noon. And I think that's really vital element, again, that we were using in the edit. And it was in his script that High Noon would play at that moment. And we would then go in an editorial style to a more classic Western, going to the high angle shot where you saw the two men before, you know, the gun comes out and he throws the out of earth, uh-huh. that you would allow a more playful <coughs> editorial style and let the high noon music just transcend everything and actually remove the sound or reduce the sound. I like those different styles. 
Yeah, I love it when Buddy's watching High Noon and then yeah. you just keep playing Tex Ritter song as we start Sorry. seeing different images of Belfast. It's such an interesting juxtaposition. And then to bring it back when the scene that you're talking about where there's a real threat to Buddy and his family, it looks like there could be some real violence done to them by yeah. this war that's going on with the Protestants and the Catholics. And suddenly you go into, like you say, magical realism where it becomes almost like a Western scene. You go into slow motion, uh, <laughs> you start playing the high noon in a way, it works so well because the movie is Buddy and his memories. And so he can almost remember this as his father becoming the hero at yeah. this moment. Correct. Even if Pa never did that, it's how the child felt of just if the Pa had shown up or whatever. I think there's a little bit of grace or latitude there that this is as he remembered it. And sometimes, you know, children who've gone through the trauma, they will remember things with the safety valve of whether it's the high noon that blurring of the edges of a child's perspective. That was a really important tool, I think, in our editorial toolbox. I enjoy how you didn't feel that you were handcuffed to staying in Buddy's perspective, that you could go to other people's point of view, which I thought was, was good, because yeah. some films feel like we have to stay in this particular perspective because it's being told from this particular character. Uh, well, I think you're right. I think Buddy was sort of the backbone of the film. But it was really important to actually allow Ma to have a voice. But also, I think, thanks to Ken's gathering of such incredible cast. I mean, uh, the cast, I couldn't believe it when I heard here we had Judy Dench, Katrina Balfe, Jamie Dornan, Kieran Hines and Little Jude Hill. A brilliant cast, which meant that also they gave an awful lot, even in simple scenes. And to be able to find those little moments that could just allow you a moment of empathy with those characters at that moment in time. And I think for Ken, it was important because he was celebrating and paying tribute to his beautiful family and the community that he came from. You know, he wanted to make sure that it is an ensemble piece, really, and that, and that those characters were allowed to have a voice. So by the end of the film, you cared about all of them. That everlasting love sequence, that's another one from an editorial point of view. Although we had all the bells and whistles of the trumpets of things, it was really important for me as an editor to keep an eye on the subtext, which was Granny's grief, Mom and Pa coming together, that they love each other, that all that tension and stress and will their marriage even survive this, that ultimately they love each other and you know, he shoots the arrow. And again, withholding the close-up of Buddy. So we don't see that big close-up of Buddy smiling at them until the end of the scene when you mm -hmm. can realise you've actually just witnessed this through Buddy's eyes. So I, th I think we've found ways of doing point of view, but I was blessed with incredible performances from the cast. And sometimes using stolen moments in the cinema, Judy Dench was really funny and she always got Jude laughing. So we had real moments that actually happened before cut or after action, because sometimes Ken did rolling takes in order to help nurture Jude Hill's performance. So we had long, long takes, which I, I would say to any director who's shooting with a child, it's great because it just meant he could keep going and help nurture little Jude and give Jude the confidence to try out other ideas and other things. So then we had this wealth of beautiful material from Jude who just got stronger and stronger. And those close-ups of, of Buddy are so powerful. And when you go to them, you really get the sense that you're inside Buddy's head. And of course, Judy Dench could make a joke and he would laugh. So in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, when he's laughing, he's actually laughing at a joke Judy has just said to him. Before That's right. Yeah. Ken is always interested in those stolen moments which can actually reveal 
the humanity of the person because it's real. Well, speaking of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, what was the choice to be in black and white? And then what was the choice to then have color for some of the color movies and for the Christmas Carol and the opening? So for the opening and closing, as per script, it was always color and the film black and white and cinema color. So we always knew that we had this use of color within the body of the film as an expression of, I suppose, the imagination of the child or the escapism of the child from this reality. I think Ken would feel that the black and white just lends itself to maybe a very authentic feel that you can just focus in on the story and not get too distracted by the beautiful costumes that you know. We had another film, The Great Escape, which was colour. But where that came, it didn't earn its place. So then we found we had two cinema scenes and the theatre, which was in black and white. So then we said, OK, well, how about if we pull this theatre into colour? Because, of course, with Ken, he's a great theatre actor and director as well as film and TV. And then that was a very natural process. And then Ken, Matt Glenn, the VFX producer, myself, we were just talking and sort of saying, OK, what if we put the reflection in Granny's glasses, which could be like a nice mm-hmm. little nod to the poetic nature of his grandmother, because she really loved films back in the day. She really loved theatre. So that was actually a very organic development during the edit process of just the rule of three, two cinemas and then a black and white theatre. Could the theatre be colour? They shot everything in colour and put a black and white grade on the material. So we had the ability to go into colour for anything. Mm. And that's what we did. That's great. The black and white footage is just gorgeous. Beautiful. And what what I loved about it, they really graded it in this sort of luxurious velvety black and white. And then they did a little bit of effect on some of the eye shots at times where they had made a little bit of more whiteness in the eye when the child was afraid in that first rotating shot. So very subtle little things that they did, which just added to that effect. I think it actually allowed you to just lean in. I think that was one of the major things that we wanted to do. We wanted the audience to lean in and listen. And then the way he shot the prologue, we did that actually almost like a preview cut prior to principal photography, where he went out with Harris and Jim Clay, the production designer, and they shot things on their phone. We were exploring the best way of opening the film, voiceover, an interview in Van Morrison. And then within two or three days, Ken refined it to just Van Morrison. He, He dropped his voiceover. Um, we had one point where we had the child's voice at the beginning and the man's voice at the end, but we lost that as well. So we, we mm. really explored the material and tried to work out the best way to reveal this story and do justice to his script because the script was beautiful. But gradually they fell away. This is where I think you're right with your first question about there is a poetic element within the film, but I think implicitly we let the poetry reveal itself and through the process of editing and refinement, any explicit references to poetry fell away. They just helped us as a process to pull the film together. Sure, they sort of revealed what the essence was so that then you didn't need them anymore because it was all subtextual. Yeah. And I love how you and Ken juggled the joy and the comedic elements with this tragedy. And it's such a beautiful stew, but also complicated to make sure that the tone stays true throughout. I am mindful of it because I don't want to make it sound like it's a very Irish thing because I am aware that we're all human. So I'm sure this is a very Jewish thing as well as it is a very Italian thing or Syrian thing. We can go around the world. But I do think we have a great reputation, I think, the Irish for storytelling. I'm the only person in my family who's in film. But my parents and my grandparents would have had oral storytelling tradition. I think Ken obviously comes from the same type of stock. 
So I think it goes hand in hand. If you came over to my parents' house, they can tell you the story and they'll have you laughing and then they'll have you crying and then you'll be laughing. And that flow of emotion is part and parcel of filmmaking. We just tapped into that. But I, I, I don't want to make this an Irish thing because I'm sure this is actually just a human thing. That it was just, it was really important to avoid being overtly sentimental or being too dour when things mm. got hard. Like, for example, losing pops. It was critical that we went to Everlasting Love uh, on a very deep level. This film is about healing. And I think that was really important for the universality of the film and maybe why this film is appealing to people. Ken said he was in different countries and people can come up to him with a Nigerian background or a Polish background. And they're actually saying, you captured something of my life. And all of our lives are filled with comedy and tragedy. Yeah. We didn't want to get too deep into the whole politics of Northern Ireland, but by showing it through the eyes of Buddy, it allowed us just celebrate the humanity of all of us. Well, I love when you're talking about the funeral and then going to everlasting love because the funeral, the way it's cut is very simple and you have these long lingering close-ups of Buddy looking at his father and then you have this real long close-up of Judy Dench just studying her face, the weight and the love It's not like she's just sad. It's that she's just taking in this life with this man who she cared deeply about. And then you switch that up with this beautiful, great dance where Pa is serenading Ma. They're sexy and they're in love and there's so much spark in it. And you see Buddy going, these two are like the king and queen of of Belfast. And it's wonderful. Wonderful. And you know that face that you remember of Judy Dent? I hope I'm allowed to say, I'm sure I am allowed to say, but because I think it's sort of a nice little thing. But that face of hers with those tears in her eyes, that's actually the second setup of when the bus is leaving. So we had a medium shot and we had a close shot. Mm. That's the close shot. And what, what I found was, yeah, and it, was, it just looked like if you just moved that close up, no one would know it's the same shot twice because she's actually in the same doorway. And thankfully, Granny wore actually almost the same clothes. So you'd never know. And and also the black and white was a huge favor for us anytime we had to do anything sneaky like that. So that beautiful face with the tears, it just went so well with the mourners leaving. So all of that was a nice crafting together of just trying to find anything that we could poach from one scene that we hadn't used already because it was truthful. Yeah. That story when Pops is talking to Buddy about the tax man and then you're intercutting it with the tax man coming <laughs> to pick up the taxes. I thought that was really clever. Yeah, it, you know, that was really funny. And, and actually, if, if we had more of them, I think that they would have been quite fun. But it really worked there for Pops' story. It was sort of like given to him. And was, you didn't make it a gimmick. It, it, it no. was just one time, which was great. Oh, yeah. We did have one version that had one more, but that was the one that worked. And this probably feeds into your question about subjective point of view. This was one for Pops, for example. So we did find ways where we could allow each character a moment where the audience could just empathise with them and understand it from their point of view. Mm. And basically leading to the moment of him saying to Buddy, what do you want? And little Buddy saying, I want Granny and you to come too. And and then we cut Mm. outside. That's one of my favourite cuts. That's one of my favourite shots, actually, because I actually studied directing and cinematography first for four years in Dublin. And then I specialised in film editing at the National Film and Television School. So I, I actually really have an appreciation and I really admire cinematography. 
And I love the fact that Ken and Harris have used frames within a frame where we could actually split the screen and we could make Buddy do something if we needed to rotate a later bit of his performance. But I also loved shooting through glass. I think that's really a gift. So when we were on the mm. bus, for example, and Ma is really making her case why she does not want to leave. Ken had shot through the window and then he had singles within the bus. And then the little child. So we, we had a lot of nice coverage of that scene. And what we found was the most beautiful performance by Katrina was through the glass. The performance from Jamie Dornan, which was exquisite, was actually within the bus. But if I was cutting from Katrina through a window and then cutting to a clean on Jamie, it just jarred. So then Matt Glenn, our VFX producer, created a glass effect to put over Jamie Dornan. So it meant that we could stay bearing witness to the scene between the parents, but through glass. And that Mm. was really important for me, say, as as an editor. I thought that added an extra texture to it, actually. Through the glass, just had something to it that felt more real and more authentic and allowing the audience to be privy to something that really we oughtn't to have been privy Mm. to. But we were eavesdropping on a conversation. What I loved as well is where Ken and Harris were putting the camera. I love the fact that they were keeping the camera sometimes at Buddy's level. And then later in the second riot, I love the fact that when Moira accosts little Buddy and she grabs him to say, you know, this is war, that all the shots of Buddy we picked for that area were all the ones where we were at his level. He looks absolutely terrified and he's sort of being corralled by the crowd to go Mm. somewhere where he doesn't even know where he's going. And then having the playfulness because he finds that washed up powder. And I, I love the joke when he knocks on the door and she comes running down and says, what are you doing? And he's saying, we're raiding the supermarket. <laughs> uh, why did you steal it? It's biological. <laughs> it's just, it was really good that we had that palette that we were with Buddy so much. We were able to stop off for the joke before we go on to the riot. And after everything, then you cut to the detergent just sitting on the table and you hold <laughs> yeah, on yeah, it yeah. for a long beat. After all this, we, we still got the detergent. We got the detergent, yeah. And they'll never use that detergent because that detergent is now <laughs> like the symbol of all that horror that they have. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was watching that recently, Glenn, and I did sort of think to myself, I like holding it that length of time. But I, I wonder if anyone's going to think that that was a bit indulgent. But I, I liked it. I think it earned it because also you had to move from them getting out of the van. And it felt like you really needed just to pace it right before she begins to say when I saw myself in the window dragging those kids up the street, because people do laugh when they see the biological. So that's why we sort of held it. I just sort of felt you needed. I agree. It's, it's a reset, which is nice. It's It's exactly. It's a reset. I feel that the film ends very sweet, but melancholy because there was a lot of chaos amongst the beauty. Yeah. And it got worse. So many people were lost that I think the solemnity of Ken's words for those who stayed and for those who went and for all of those who were lost, it just felt right. As soon as he wrote those words, you know, the ending when the older buddy returned was gone and he was very happy. And I think all of us who were working on it, we just felt he had found the right words to end the film. And one thing I was going to say to you, Glenn, which might be interesting, is um, mm-hmm. the poem The Little Boy in the Morning by Francis Ledwich. I'm trying to think of the beginning of it. But it's like, a, and still I wait and he will not come. He whistles at another gate where angels listen. And it's about a little boy who passed away and a friend is waiting for him to come to the gate. But whenever I saw Ken's brushes, the way Buddy went through that fence and the way his little school bag constricted his shoulders, hmm. I can remember just thinking it really resonated with me. I loved it. And I think it was really early. It might even have been the second week of the shoot. 
I was pulling the assembly together and I was trying to put a little poetic montage together for Ken at the beginning, just to ease him into the week's assembly. And I found at the end of those shots, when Buddy went through the fence, they held the shot long enough that there was an empty frame of just the fence. So I put together the fence, the saddle, and then the curtain billowing. And that's still in the film, would you believe? And when I showed that to Ken, he was really interested in that. But it meant that we had to then preserve the little boy going through the fence. So again, as an editor, it's really interesting, the things that sort of resonate with you, but they resonated with me because I just thought of that poem by Francis Ledwich, these places when they leave, they'll never be there again. Or the fence where the boys shall no longer thread or the saddle will never be finished. We both sort of felt, okay, now we have to preserve every shot of the little boy going through. So we had three shots of the little boy going through the fence. And even if anyone said to us, does he go through the fence too many times? We both were quite stoic and saying no, because we knew yeah. it wouldn't make sense at the end. Absolutely. Yeah, I think audience memory is a huge thing for me when I'm editing, always trying to find something that an audience will remember. And, you know, I saw Dune. I, I thought Joe Walker did that with his palm trees in Dune. Joe Walker's palm trees are my fence. <laughs> when I saw that in Dune, I loved it. I was thinking, oh, that's, that's exactly what I like doing as well, playing with audience memory. What were your most challenging scenes? One of the biggest challenges, Glenn, outside of individual scenes was probably more holistically how to keep the pace of the film moving in a way that would keep the audience engaged and leaning in. Ken wrote a brilliant script, but obviously from script to screen, things changed. And I think what we did very well together was forensically investigating our rushes and finding moments where you could move things, just making sure that the film was emotional. And as you said, you could laugh and then you could cry, but that we didn't stop there would always be a risk of film plateauing. Several times we would say, okay, we have to watch this. Say when there was a two hour cut, we'd have to watch the two hours because you could start editing within, but you always had to step back and just watch mm. it as a piece. Because if you did too many um, edits or if you left the scenes, I'd say they're welcome. You know, we mightn't be having the conversations about the film having such a visceral reaction to an audience. If we were to move a scene, that added to the psychology or the emotion of the piece, then it was worthy of moving. And mm. Ken's script was so strong, actually, that he was quite fearless with me of just thinking, OK, what can we move and lose that or shorten that, collapse the scene, come out of this earlier? And we found a musicality, I think, in the way that we were trying to tell the story, shaping it so an audience would be riveted and leaning in and staying with us and not allowing ourselves to become too complacent, keeping the film moving and keeping the audience engaged so that they could empathise with the characters and understand the subtext of the whole film. It's personal. It's not overtly political, but of course there's politics in there. And it is a, a celebration of community, of a beautiful city of Belfast, and to the little boy who witnessed so much change. Well, it's a beautiful film. It's really beautifully cut together, and I so enjoyed speaking to you about it today. Well, me too. Thank you so much, Glenn. It was so nice to talk to you today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. The Irish were born for leaving. Otherwise, the rest of the world would have no cops. What do you want? I want my family with me. I want you. You know who you are. I'm wherever you go. And whatever you become, I will always be the truth.